Genesis 3, 21 to 24. We'll be reading from the New International Version. Please follow along as the text is presented on the screens above. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And he drove the man out. He placed this on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. I mentioned uh, a few weeks ago when we began this series on uh, um, addictions that I have a resource list. And uh, if you're interested in that, um, let me know. There's, there's some really good resources available today. One of the, um, the books that I read way back when, in 1978, was by a guy named Scott Peck. You know that name, anybody? It was the, most, it was the biggest selling book of the last two decades of the last century. Ten million books, roughly sold. The Road Less Traveled uh, was the name of the book. And he begins that, uh, that book um, with a famous quote. It's, been, it's probably the thing that people remember the most about the book. Life is difficult. Now let's pause right there. Can, can we say, you ever said amen before? You can, you can do that right now. Life is difficult. Yes, amen. Once we truly know that life is difficult... Once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Now, I think he overstates that. I think it's still difficult. <laughs> but but uh, the point is, uh, you can see um, that it, we... Well, here, here it, this might explain his point. Avoiding problems and the emotional suffering inherent in them is the primary basis of all human mental illness. Uh, and that would include addiction. And it just... It's... it's um, what he's getting at here is really profound. Another way to say life is difficult, if you're more of a, a, a fun movie-watching person instead of a book-reading person, uh, Princess Bride, anybody know that line? Yeah. Life is pain, your highness. Anybody who says differently is selling you something. That's, yeah, there you go, for those of you who like movies. But uh, Peck was famous for connecting psychology and um, spirituality. In fact, two years after he wrote this book, he committed his life to Christ and was baptized. And he had an interesting uh, life from then on, very insightful. And I'm going to share some of what he shared with the world today from this passage in, in Genesis. Um, but the point that, this, that he's trying to make here, and we're going to get at today, is that when we, when we try to get around this idea of life code, we end up lying, we end up denying, we end up hiding, we end up with addictions, we end up in, in really bad places in life. And we don't grow as human beings. It dehumanizes us to not face up to the truth that life is difficult. Americans, um, 24 million Americans are addicted to either illegal drugs or alcohol. 24 million is the rough number out there today. And then you figure uh, the, the, the people, the, if you use the different ways of looking at it, but the multiplier of three times that would be the people who are maybe typically close enough to that person where it really affects their lives. So roughly 100 million people then are affected by illegal drugs and alcohol. And that doesn't, that doesn't include legal drugs that people get addicted to or other addictions. And if you remember the first sermon, you can make the case that to be human is to be addicted. 
So it's a big problem. And it was a problem for Scott Peck, who uh, died in 2009. And if, if you know his life story, um, he had multiple affairs. And, um, you know, his kids didn't talk to him at the end of his life. And he struggled with his own addictions. And one of the things about addictions is that you can be really, really educated on what addictions are and what they do and still be an addict. It's just one of the, education does not solve all the problems. It's a, it, it goes way deeper than that. And Peck knew that. But, and he had great things to say. We're going to explore a little this morning. But uh, in this series, which is seven weeks, we're about almost halfway into it now. And I've been laying this foundation of the connection between the word sin and the word addiction. We have to be careful there. I realize that. And um, there is a, what I, a Venn diagram would be the way to, uh, to look at it. And that part in the middle there is their shared part. There's things that, that aren't sin that are addiction and addiction that aren't sin, but um, there is this overlap. And so one of those areas of overlap, these two statements are both true. We aren't, adi- we aren't addicts because we use, we use because we are addicts. Likewise, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. You see? It's, it, we have a condition. Alcoholics say they have a disease. Well, Paul calls it, and we started here two weeks ago, the sinful nature. We have this disease called the sinful nature. That is why we sin. We're not called sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And I I used this quote a couple of weeks ago about this disease responsibility thing, but nobody is more insistent than AA that alcoholism is a, a disease, and nobody is more insistent than AA on the need for the alcoholic to take full responsibility for his or her disease to deal with it in brutal candor. Do we deal with our sin in brutal candor? I think that would be a good argument to deal with your, our sin. Why, why do we consider sin something less than an, an addiction? Why do we ostracize the addict? You know, this is, these are the questions that we're raising here. So we're going to go further into that today and um, get some insight, hopefully. Shame, life is difficult, and courage I'll start with shame. I want to go back to where we were last week, Genesis chapter 3. The word shame, as we know it, or the idea of shame as we know it, gets introduced in chapter 3 of Genesis. Adam and Eve were in this wonderful place where it was absolutely natural and normal to love God. What would we say? Love God passionately, love others deeply, and bless the world radically. That was, I mean, that's what they did. They, this man and this woman, they loved God Passionately, they loved each other deeply, and all was good in life, and they were called to bless the world radically. It was good. Life was good. Isn't there a life is good? A little smile. Yeah, that's where it started, right there. Life is good. And then the serpentine figure we run into, who introduced doubt, a seed of doubt, into the woman that led her to the conclusion I am not enough. And that created a need or a desire in her. And there's this, I don't know, it's not one of my favorite Bible verses, but boy, it has a lot of mileage and a lot of application. There is a way that seems right to a man or woman, but in the end, it leads to death. Does that have application? It seemed right. It looked, the fruit just looked really good. Remember, it was practical and beautiful and spiritual fruit as she saw it before her eyes. And she took 
the bite. She gave some to the guy. And immediately they felt something they had never felt before. And you know what it feels like. It's called shame. They felt naked. Why do I feel this? What am I feeling? I just, I'm just imagining. What, what am I feeling inside myself? I've never felt this before. Why is everybody looking at me? Why do I feel inadequate as everybody is staring at me? Give me some fig leaves. I need to cover up. Have you ever been pulled over on a busy street? Aren't you just willing to pay that fine? I don't care how much it is. Just get this over with quickly. And when you're a pastor, it's ten times worse. (laughs) But I wouldn't know. Okay. Lying. Okay, all right. But it's that feeling of being exposed. And it's not just, I mean, it's, you know how it is when you're, you're out there, you're just out there and you feel like you're the only one and you're separated and you're alienated and everybody's looking at you and there's something wrong with you and you look down at yourself, yeah, I, I don't know why anybody would want this, you know, it's self-loathing as well. And you use these, you ever talk to yourself in that way? Like you, you use words to yourself and you kind of hate yourself. Shame. And here's the deal, you become... Um, For the first time, this is really important, for the first time, Adam and Eve, and we are to find ourselves in them, they felt self-conscious. That's the word we're looking for. They were not self-conscious before that. There was a sense of being one with God and with each other and the world, and it was just seamless. And now there's this alienation thing that comes in. There's this weird, weird feeling. Okay, I have many stories from seventh grade. Here's one of them. Do you think the word shame might come into this one? <laughs> so um, it was near the end of the school year, and I, I bought some new shoes that I thought looked really cool, and I wore them to school, and I found myself kind of on the outskirts of these guys who sort of defined coolness at Jefferson Junior High. And they, were, I walked, as I walked up, they were just talking about someone else who, and they were laughing at him and mocking him because of the shoes he wore. And guess what? They were the same shoes I had on. Yeah. You've thought, I mean, you just feel so naked. And I just kind of went, you know, like this. And I, here's what I did. I did something really smart. I ran to my gym locker, and I got my stinky tennis shoes out, and I changed them, and I never wore those shoes again. That's junior high, or at least, you know, maybe it's called middle school now, but I think the same stuff kind of happens. You become self-conscious. And God, um, well, the fig leaves come into it there. I guess those old tennis shoes were my fig leaves. That was their reaction to it. And then we're not going to read this part, but God ends up condemning the serpent. And what's really important to understand is that God does not condemn the man and the woman. He gives them consequences for their behavior, but it's not, it's not condemning language as it is for the serpent. And the consequences are they're going to have, it's going to be a lot harder. So I go back to the first phrase, life is going to be difficult. Life is difficult. You're going to have pain and you're going to have toil. And the, the more pain for the woman in childbirth, toil for men, but, but it's pain and toil, right? For all, to one degree or another. 
But I wonder if the biggest consequence of the story isn't the pain and the toil, but it's the shame that we see in the story. I don't know, you can think about that one, but um, shame is such a, a big thing. And we'll get into that here more as the story goes on. We're going to pick it up where it was read for us in verse 21. And the first thing, there's two things that happen that show that God's grace is in, in uh, effect still. That his love hasn't diminished. The Lord made garments of skin for Adam and Eve, and he clothed them. He clothed them. It's important to think what, what clothing someone does. A parent clothes their, they clothe their children before they go outside. The, he, he says, get, you know, get rid of those fig leaves. I think they took them to Value Village is what they did. But anyway, <laughs> get rid of those fig leaves. I'm going to give you something that's going to really work for you. Because life is going to be difficult. You're going to need some real clothing now. But the thing that uh, the theologians make this point is that sin, which is why they're having to wear clothes now, is very costly. And so animals had to die. Blood had to be shed for this these two people to be clothed, which points to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the blood that covers. We'll come back to that one. So there's grace there. God is gracious. The second thing he does, and this is where you have to, um, you have to see it the right way, but he banishes them from the garden, which seems really harsh. Banish is a strong word. He drove them out, it says. But the reason for it is a, is a reason of grace, so that they would not eat of the tree of life. There were two trees in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And now that their eyes had been opened and they feel this shame thing, God does not want them to eat from the tree of life because the tree of life is that from which you eat, which allows you to live forever, and he does not want them to live forever feeling shamed. Do you see how gracious that is? I think I shared this after my sabbatical, but one of the books I read in my sabbatical last summer was by Yuval Harari, who wrote the book Sapiens, which became very well-known. Some of you may have read it. But he also wrote a book after that called Homo Deus, which is a fascinating and scary book. But in, in that book, he says that we are on the verge, technologically speaking, he's a futurist, we are on the verge of um, no longer having to uh, put up with um, age, the aging process. And I, I did a little research on this, but some are predicting that by the year 2050, that would be 30 years from now, the manipulation of cells in the human body will be such that you will no longer age. I don't know. <laughs> you're, which just means you're going to live with more shame in your life if you read this story the way it's written. In other words, you're going to live longer. You're going to live a longer period of time feeling alienated from God and the world that he has made and the relationships that he has set in your life. Good news or bad news, see? You have to take your, your choice. And I don't know if, if that's uh, scientifically, I mean, I think there's probably arguments that would uh, be against that conclusion, but um, it's, it's out there. So they were banished. They were driven out of the garden. And I want to pause over this. Just imagine them. There's some kind of a, a, a wall, maybe, around the garden. There's something that, that separates it. You can't just go in. And um, they're, they're outside there. 
And I want to look at maybe what they're feeling. We're going to have to use our imaginations here. The text doesn't say a whole lot. But we do have this image of this, uh, uh, an angel. To me, it's a scary angel, right? With flaming swords going kind of like this, you know? In other words, there's no way you're going back in there. That's the message that you get. It's really a strong message. We have that in, in the text. We don't know, I'm going to talk about addiction here, we don't know the cause of, um, we're not sure exactly of the cause or causes of addiction. And when it comes to alcohol, we know for sure that there's a genetic thing that makes some people more predisposed than others. But there's other, there's other things that come into it too. And one of them, uh, this is from somebody I quoted last week, Gabor Mate, who's um, a physician up in Vancouver who has worked with alcoholics. And he says that in his experience with uh, alcoholics on the street of Vancouver is that they have all, he says all, experienced some level of childhood trauma. So that's beyond the genetic. It's childhood trauma. And it has to do with the attachment that a child in a healthy family would receive from mother or particularly mother, but also father, a voice or eyes or an expression that says, I love you. And when that gets broken or compromised, there's trauma in the child. And that, you know, in a big way could lead to alcoholism or maybe another addiction. That's the the theory. So I want to take, just think about that. This couple, and we find ourselves in Adam and Eve, have experienced some separation or a detachment from the most loving parent ever. They had, they had immense intimacy, uh, um, un, unhampered access to God as their parent. Do you think there wasn't some stuff going on inside of them that would be like trauma? And what about grief? Do you think there wasn't some grieving? As they are now outside this wall with this sword-wielding angel barring entrance back in. They want to go back in so badly. It was so much better in there. It was warmer and safer. And, you know, when I was a kid, I, I remember there was a particular time where I remember this, but I remember a number of times where I experienced wonderful things like warm times at the beach, a long weekend at the beach. And I wasn't a big fan of school back then. Sorry about that, teachers. I just wasn't. But, um, and then you had to go back to school on Monday, and I remember uh, we were, my grandparents had a place down at Long Beach, Washington, and we just, I just loved that weekend when it came to an end. I remember feeling so much grief as an eight-year-old that this thing had ended, and now I have to go back to school. And I remember asking my mom, trying to describe it to her, this thing I was feeling inside that was so strong, and I said, why do I feel this way? Why do I want to cry? You know, it's just that, that, that over. So I just picture this. Do you, I mean, I just picture Adam and Eve bawling their eyes out outside this wonderful world they were in that they can no longer go back into. Well, uh, the text doesn't really say all that. And one of the things that C.S. Lewis says in the um, Narnia Chronicles, I think it's in the silver chair, where there's this 
um, there's this girl named Jill and this boy named Eustace. And it's right at the beginning of the book, and Eustace falls off this cliff. And Jill is left by herself, and she's crying. She doesn't know what to do. And Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion, comes along, and he says, you know, it's okay to cry for a little while, but pretty soon you need to know what to do next. So you can have your pity party, but now you have to figure out what to do. This is where Scott Peck has some insight for us, I think. They're outside the garden, and they have been asked to walk a journey, not towards, back towards the garden, but into the desert. This is, this is his language, but I'm going I'm to go with it. Into the desert. And in the Bible, the desert means a place of risk, danger, trials. You don't know what's going to happen there. And God is asking you to go into the desert. And guess what? A lot of people just don't want to go there. I don't think, who, who does? If you had the option between going into the desert or going back into the garden, what would you choose? You go back into the garden. And this is what he says the addicts, the addict mindset does. Now, he, he gave this, this talk. It was to a group, an, an AA group, I don't know how many years ago, but this is the imagery that he used. The addict cannot face the hard realities, the life is difficult realities that are before them. They want to get back into the garden. And that, it's that impulse of wanting to get back into the garden that causes you to not grow into the human being that God intended for you. It's almost like uh, a child, he says, Pick says, a child wanting to get back into the mother's womb. It's just safer in there. It's warmer in there. And you will use whatever means necessary. You will lie, you will manipulate, you will try to control things, and of course you will use substances to help you get back in there. And it doesn't work. The substances particularly promise you can get back in, but they don't deliver on that promise. Now underneath this, and this is another one of his insights, underneath that get back into the garden, knocking on the door as loud as you can, is a spiritual hunger. What, what the addict, I'm going to just say what the sinner, because I believe we're all in this one, what the sinner wants more than anything else is life with God, and it just gets filled with other stuff. But their hunger is a spiritual hunger. So in um, one of the letters we have in the history of AA is a letter from Carl Jung, the psychologist, to Bill Wilson, the uh, founder of um, AA. And uh, in that letter, which I actually saw a copy of, um, it says that the word in Latin, the word alcohol, is spiritus. So spirit. And, and Jung's point was that the longing of an alcohol is really a longing for something spiritual. I, so I think we're on to something here. It's a long... You know, when, when I was in high school, I... I, did, I wasn't a good kid in high school, but one thing I can say is I never, did the, I never did the hard drugs, okay? But I had friends that did. And I listened to them as they told stories about their acid trips. And one of the things I remember, it's funny what you remember in life, is that they didn't feel self-conscious. They felt at one with the world. 
Think what alcohol does. You lose self-consciousness, a bit at least, with a glass of wine. You become, you loosen up. You're not as concerned about what everybody's thinking. You don't feel as naked. You feel, I don't know, whatever. It's a, something. And it's that longing. That's a spiritual longing. It's what was lost in the Garden of Eden. But you can't go back. You have to go forward. This is really frustrating. Life is difficult. Here's a... I don't know where this quote came from. I I tried to find the source, but I lost it. Anyway, addiction is an impaired attempt to find life without having to pay the price of feeling all that life requires one to feel. That captures it there. We can't go back. We have to go forward. Now, here's the deal with the desert. I said earlier, it's a tough place. Think of your think of life as a desert. It's it is a tough place. But in the Bible, it's also a place where you're tested in order to grow. It's a place where you have to become dependent on spiritual resources beyond yourself to survive. It can be a wonderful place. The desert has its own beauty, does it not? So to be called into the desert, to walk through the desert, is how we grow up as people. Not only that, but in the story it says that it was to the east. And east in the Bible always means the place of hope. It's the direction of hope, to the east. The east is where the sun rises. That's probably a part of it. But it's also where the Son of God will return from. He will come in the clouds from the east. In the eastern sky, we shall see him. Desert is not our home. The tree of life is at the end of the desert. This is how the Bible would talk about it. You don't run into this tree of life phrase again until when? Until the book of Revelation. It's right at the end of the Bible. And we have to journey from this garden in Genesis all the way through the Bible to get to the tree of life. But it's there, and there is eternal life, and there is no more shame. There's no more tears in that tree of life when we take the fruit in there. Isn't this beautiful? I don't know. I love it. There's hope. So we get to the, the third word up there was courage. I don't know if it's the right word. Maybe faith is better. One of the things I appreciate immensely about AA is they make clear things that are true for all of us. And that is, uh, one of them at least, is that, that an addict will say, I am powerless. I, ha- I am totally powerless against this addiction. And I think, you know, I think about the, the, whether you call them addictions or sins, the things that I feel powerless towards. Yeah, I am too. And they take addiction seriously with brutal candor. That was the phrase that we started with today. And they know that you can't get through this life without two things. And I'll, I'll make them more clear and, and very Christian. But the, an AA, they know that you can't do this on your own. You cannot walk through this desert by yourself. God has not made it that way. You have to walk through the desert with a group of broken people who are with you, who understand what it's like to be broken, who aren't lying, who have brutal candor about life. The New Testament word is alelos or alenon. Alenon, no, alelon. Sorry, that's like alenon. Alelon. And it means one another. It's found 93 times in the New Testament. Forgive one another. Love one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. 
It just goes on and on and on. You can't do this by yourself. We can't do this by yourself. You know, we're, we're in it together. And then the second thing is that you need a power that is greater than yourself. So you got the horizontal resources and the vertical resources. You need a power that is greater. And obviously, um, for the Christian, it's God. The question is, does God, you have to answer this one, did God love Adam and Eve? And put your name in there. Did God love them any less when they rebelled against him? And how you answer that question will make all the difference. (laughs) He didn't love them any less. And how do we know that? Well, not just because he said so or whatever, but he ends up communicating in like the most... Um, the strongest way possible by sending his son. And his son, God's son Jesus, he walked through the desert perfectly. Just perfectly. No one had ever done it before. Through the desert, through all that stuff. And yeah, he had, he had his company of 12 disciples, but wow, he did it. He made it to the end. And you'd think, oh, he made it to the end. <laughs> Guess what he gets rewarded with? The tree of life? No, he gets the tree of death. That's what the cross is, the tree of death. And he becomes vulnerable and naked and shamed and all of that stuff for us that we might have the tree of life. What a deal for us. See how loved you are? He couldn't have said it any stronger. There's nothing he, what more could he have done? is the question of the hymn. Yeah. And to the tree of life, that's, that's our future. And I want you to just focus on what that means. You will no longer feel shame. You will no longer feel self-conscious. That is not part of heaven, folks. You will be so good. You will be so... And this is better than the garden. I mean, this, I don't even have to go there, but... At bare minimum, there will be no shame and there will be no self-consciousness. You will be just so one with God and with people and with all that is in that world. It'll be so healing. It'll be so beautiful. Don't you long for it? Don't you hunger for it? Let's pray. Dear God, um, this is... I love, I just love this, this passage. I love what might be there. I love what you have done in being so gracious to us, clothing us. This text says clothing with animal skins and we can say clothed with Christ so that there is no more shame. And Lord, we look forward to that day where we can eat from the tree of life in fullness and experience the oneness that was lost in the garden. Oh Lord, we need your healing. Um, I'm just going to put this out before all of us at the human level if you would like to surrender something in your life maybe your heart maybe you, totally you the whole of your understanding of yourself surrender to a power that is greater who's a person 
Jesus Christ. Just in your heart say, Jesus, come into my life. Make me new. Clean me up, Lord. I can't do it anymore on my own. I need the resources of heaven. And I long to eat from the tree of life. Someday. And Lord, each day as I walk through this life that is so difficult, through this desert, I pray for your strength to sustain me. Whatever part of that prayer connects with where you are in life, grab onto it, pray it, and live into it. We pray this in Jesus' name.